Well, for those of you guys who have been here the last couple weeks, we've been in a series called Just Ask, and you guys have had a chance to ask a lot of questions, and that's not over. What we're doing tonight is we got a panel of experts up here. That's what they would call themselves, I'm sure. Uh, we got a panel up here, and some of you guys know them. I'll tell you who they are in just a moment. But some of you guys have asked some questions. We're going to answer some of those questions real rapid fire tonight. And then you'll also have a chance to ask questions right now. I want you to know that if you text the number that's on the outside of the screen, if you text a question, you have a question right now, and you text it, first of all, it's anonymous. That doesn't go to any of our phones directly or anything like that. We don't know who it is. It's anonymous. It comes in through a different system, and all we do is we just get the question. So we don't get your name or anything like that. So if you have any questions... Now, we have, we have somebody that's going to be uh, monitoring that. If there's some really good questions, they'll send them up to me. I'll write them down. And we have a couple students that are going to ask those questions. So if you see me pull out my phone, it's not because I'm texting or something like that. I'm looking at the questions that are coming in. Again, we don't know who it is. So they're anonymous. Any questions you have, go ahead and ask those tonight. Now, I want to introduce you to the people that we have up here tonight. Uh, by the way, if you have a phone and you're not using it to ask that or to take notes, go ahead and put that away if you will. Uh, but this is Alfonso Gilbert. Everybody say hi, Alfonso. He is from our Woodway campus. He is our Spanish uh, pastor uh, at the Woodway campus, and uh, he's brilliant, as you'll find out here in just a few moments. Uh, this is my beautiful wife, um, Michelle, and uh, she's incredibly brilliant as well, but she's also beautiful, and she's my wife. So she gets to be up here tonight. Um, you guys, I'm excited that you get to hear from her, because I know you guys don't get to very often. And then, of course, our campus pastor, Mark Terry, and then our preaching campus pastor, Pastor Craig Reynolds, as well. And then we have a couple students, Reagan Sharp, senior at Kingwood High School, and then Chris Luck, Jr. at K Park. They're going to be the ones asking the questions. Now, I want you to know, just because they're asking the questions does not mean that they're their questions. They're just asking them on behalf of all you guys, all right? So you guys ready to get this started with the first question? Yeah, if you have any questions, make sure you text them while we're going on. Otherwise, Reagan, why don't you go ahead and ask the first question? How do you pray, and why do we pray if God already knows what we are thinking? Okay, I'm just, I'm going to answer very short, and then I'm going to pass off to these guys. Why do we pray? Let me deal with that one first. Because Jesus assumed we would. He told us to. He said in the Lord's Prayer, when you pray, pray in this way. Our Father who art in heaven. And so right off the bat, but just in response to that, when the disciples said, teach us how to pray, he just assumed that would be the part of a practicing Christian's life, that we would pray. Now, the second question is, why do we pray if, if, um, if, if, if God knows what we are thinking. If God knows what we're thinking. Good question. So I'm going to pass that on to Alfonso. <laughs> Which, one was the and I'm gonna... Which one was the question? Why do you pray if God knows what you are thinking? Well, I'll put it in this, in this perspective. I, I have four kids, 23, 22, uh, 13, and 12. And I, I appreciate their dependence on me. I can't tell you as a father how much I love when my kids come and ask me for something. Even my 23rd year old is kind of off on her own. As a dad, I love it. It shows their dependence on me to some degree. It shows that they love me, that they trust me. And I just want to hear what's in their heart and desire. And I think God, 
thinks the same way towards us. He already knows, but he loves to hear you conversate with him. He loves to hear you come to him and say, Lord, can I please have this or whatever you may pray for? Uh, how can I worship God at school? Okay, how can I worship God at school? Um, well, first of all, I think that we worship God as a lifestyle. It's, we worship him wherever we go. So you as a believer in Christ, as a Christian, are a representative of Jesus Christ wherever you go. But at school specifically, I think in this culture, we're bombarded with a, a lot of... Uh, things that probably are not, aren't, aren't true when it comes to what your freedoms are at school. You're, a lot of you probably have heard you can't pray at school or you can't bring your Bible to school or um, things like that, and those aren't true. Um, really, like legally, those are not, that's not true. You can put your Bible on your desk at school and nobody can say anything about it. And so you have a lot of freedoms as Christians at school that don't let anybody tell you that that's not, that you can't do that. But you also can, can worship the Lord at school through your actions, through your conversations, through your friendships, through your attitude towards your teachers. You're, you're worshiping God through those things. And also sharing Jesus with people. That's worshiping God. You know, when you share Jesus with, with your friends, with people around you. And so I think in, in your whole life, you're worshiping God wherever you go. But especially at school, you're his representative there and you have freedom to do that stuff. And even if the, even if the government told us that, hey, you can't bring your Bible to school, hey, you can't um, do that stuff, it's, you still have, that's why we have the word of God in us. You have, the, you have the word of God on your phone. And so nobody can take that away from you. And so um, be bold for Jesus at school um, because you are his representative where you go. Why are there so many versions of the Bible? We have different versions of the Bible because when Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John, when they wrote their accounts, they needed to make copies to preserve the Bible. And whenever a Bible got worn out because they would unscroll it and scroll it back up, they had to go through a, a burial process of burning the scrolls, the Bible. This is why we don't have the original Bibles. So they had to make copies. And with the copies they made, every time the oils on your fingers got onto the Bible, it would cause it to fade. And so there were certain words that we couldn't see as clearly. So we had to do our best. The scribes back then in the time of Jesus, after the time of Jesus, they had to make sure that they used a correct word, but they couldn't sometimes see it. So they had to do their best to determine which word fit the context. Well, over a thousand years of doing this, little, little pieces, little, little, little small pieces, little small words were, were changed. Well, in the Greek language, this is what happened. And so as modern times began and students like us began to study the Bible in the Greek language, we had uh, kind of like little, little small variants of the Greek language. And so we studied it and then we translated into English. And then as more modern times came around, we wanted to use vocabulary that was in the vernacular, vocabulary that was in vogue, vocabulary that was today very modern. And so some of the translations that we have today 
use language that is in vogue or in the vernacular that we use today. You can say cool, meaning something is cool or hip, or it's cool inside here, like I'm freezing, right? Same word, two different ways. Well, that's how we have different translations that have come over time. But all translations, most of them, are translated from the Greek language. The Bible's written in Greek and Hebrew, and we translate straight from the Greek language and the Hebrew language into the English, into Spanish, into German, into different languages. That, that's what Mark wanted to say, too. I would have said that. He would have said that. <laughs> I will say, let me say a word about Alfonso, so you know this. I'll take five seconds. Of all of our teaching pastors, Alfonso um, is truly an expert in the languages and these things. And when we meet with Dr. Young and Dr. Ben Young and Gary Thomas and, and, and all of our teaching pastors, um, they listen when Alfonso speaks to the Greek, to the Hebrew, and to those translations, because he truly is an expert on it. So when he speaks right there, he... he we're teasing and saying we could, no, he's, he is truly an expert. And I'm, I'm grateful for him coming tonight, being a part of this night with us. So, Alfonso, thank you. That's great. These are, these are great. You guys are asking some great questions. We have a lot of students asking this one question right now. Okay. Uh, lots of people are asking, is it wrong to date a non-Christian? Yes. All right. Next question. <laughs> Just kidding. Give a little bit more to that. Well, for one thing, and, and jump in there anytime you want to, but that is, you know, people sometimes give the whole thing of, well, I'm dating this person who's not a Christian, so maybe my influence can, you know, lead them to Christ. Rarely does that ever happen. Rarely. Sometimes it does, and I know some of you are going to come up with, well, well, my dad dated my mom and blah, 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 and she wasn't Christian. Honestly, rarely does that ever happen. Most of the time, the person who's the non-Christian will drag the Christian down almost every time. And if dating is a precursor to marriage, and you certainly should never marry someone who is not uh, a believer. If you're a believer, you should never marry someone who is not a believer. That's, I mean, that's ab an absolute, you know, that's an absolute line in the sand. Then why would you back up and and do something that's a pre-marriage practice uh, before that? It just it just doesn't work out. Someone else want to jump in there? I think you you're gonna either marry the person or you're gonna break up. Those are your only options. So if you're gonna marry them, you want somebody that eventually you're going to marry that you're, that's going to be going the same direction as you are. If you're pursuing Jesus, why would you want someone who's not pursuing Jesus? Why would you want to link arms with somebody that's going to be going the opposite direction when you're trying to pursue Jesus? You want somebody that's going to, to walk with you and push you to know Jesus more. So, yeah. yeah, and she's hot too. All right, um, <clears throat> all right, the next question is coming from Reagan. What is the Christian way to respond to the Syrian refugees? No, this is a question that's being asked tonight. What is a Christian, how should we respond as Christians to all the refugees coming, the Syrian refugees and things like that? <laughs> Since we just talked about loving our enemies Sunday morning, huh? Here's the, not that the Syrians are enemies, they're not. Um, we're in a very unique position in the world um, and, and, and certainly, and by the way, 
in our executive staff meetings, even back as much as a year ago, we were talking about as a church trying to find ways to help some uh, Syrian families uh, come to the United States. Now, those were Christian families. We actually have, if you remember, if you guys come on Sunday mornings, you've seen it uh, just recently, a testimony from Pastor Samara, who is a pastor in Syria. So picture, we have Second Baptist Church as a pastor in Syria right now. He is a wonderful, godly man. Uh, but the, the problem with what's going on now with the refugees is the infiltration of so many people that want to come here and do harm to our nation. Um, and so, how, you know, how do we, in a loving way, vet those people and keep those out that would want to come here and do damage and kill people? Uh, it, it's a very, very difficult situation. We should love them. We should find a way to serve them. Uh, but I also think right now, uh, in the short term, we need to find a way to vet those that we would allow in and not just sell everybody in. I know that's, that's kind of harsh, and, I, and that's even a hard thing for me to say. That's a fantastic question without an easy answer. There's not an easy answer for that. Yes, there, there, there isn't an easy answer. And let me tell you why, there's, why this is a difficult question. Because when you're dealing with the Muslim religion, this is a very scary thing that a lot of people are not aware of. In the Muslim, you have the jihadists or the terrorists. And then second to them, you have what's called Islamism. This is the second portion of Islam. These guys are regional terrorists like Hamas. But people like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, the Islamic State of Islam, they're global terrorists. These are the guys that are infiltrating uh, the Syrians and many other people that are coming as refugees to America. But here's the fundamental problem. 80% of Muslims are Sunni Muslims. They're moderates. They're what's called moderates. What people don't know is that this moderate who doesn't like the jihadists or the terrorist, he doesn't like the terrorist. This guy is against the terrorist. 80% of them, the majority of Muslims, are against the terrorist. The problem is, is that both of these subscribe to the Quran. And I've read the Quran, and the Quran tells them that if you are a moderate Muslim, you must defend the jihadist over someone that is an apostate, like someone that leaves the Muslim world, or someone that is an infidel. You and I are known as infidels because we don't believe in Islam, Allah, Muhammad. We are infidels. And then if you leave the Muslim religion, you become an apostate. The two people that you are supposed to declare war on, the jihadists, the terrorists declare war on, are on these two people. But this guy, the Sunni, who doesn't want to kill us, if he has to choose between finding a CIA or FBI agent and telling them, my next door neighbor is a terrorist, he's Muslim, I'm Muslim, I'm a moderate, he's a terrorist, and my next door neighbor is gonna get blown up by this terrorist, that Sunni has to abide by the Quran and he will choose to not say anything about what the terrorist is gonna do to your neighbor. Your neighbor's an American, the terrorist wants to blow him up, blow his home up. That moderate Muslim is bound by the Quran to not tell the FBI agent that this guy is gonna blow up my friendly neighbor who is a Christian or who is a Buddhist or whatever he is. 
That's what Americans don't understand. This is why it is so dangerous. Well, infiltrating within the refugees, whether they are moderate Muslims or terrorists, doesn't matter. Because if they have to choose to protect you as an infidel or protect their terrorist Muslim who they don't like, they're going to protect the terrorists. They have to because that's what the Quran teaches. That's the danger with accepting refugees. But like the Bible says, the ones that do come, we love them with the love of Jesus, as, as Pastor Craig was saying. So that's, that's essentially the problem with Muslim uh, religion today. It is a catastrophe, and it's highly dangerous. These are great questions. Keep, keep sending them in. Uh, Chris, go ahead and ask the next question. Okay. Uh, why did God make the devil to tempt us to do bad things? The question was, why did God create the devil to tempt us to do bad things? I'm just reading the question so everybody can hear it here. We had a whole series on evil. And, and uh, when God created the devil, or Satan, I guess you're not asking me that question, everyone is. But when God created Lucifer, he was not, uh, at that point, had not rebelled and had not been cast out of heaven. Um, but pride got him. Pride got him. Uh, and and I'm going to let Alfonso speak to this in a minute. But, but for us to respond to a loving God, uh, there has to be a way for us to respond. There has to be a way for us to, uh, to go our own way or to go his way, that free will, that, that will we have to choose to obey him, to choose to love him, to choose to follow him. Uh, and and uh, when, when God created Satan, I, don't, I think he knew what was going to happen because God is, he is all-knowing. Um, but God in his goodness also created a way for us to be forgiven uh, for our mistakes and follow him. But why God did it, I don't understand. I don't, why there's evil, it, it's, it's deeper than us. It's a it's, uh, very, very difficult issue, but we have a loving God that's conquered evil and has won over evil. We know that. So, Fonso, you might want to add to that. I don't know if you want to go. Okay. Go to that. But when he, when he goes to the board, it gets really serious. <laughs> The Bible tells us in the book of, um, is it Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah 14, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong. The Bible in these two places talks about Satan, how he was created and what he did. And as an angel, as Lucifer in the Old Testament, he decided, he decided to usurp the authority of God. He had free will as an angel, just, just as we have free will, the ability to make a, a choice. And he chose to rebel against God. And Ezekiel 28 describes this, as well as Isaiah 14. And when he did that, and he breached God's covenant, he chose to use his free will to do evil. When he did, he became like an apostate, so to speak. And he was banned from heaven, the Bible tells us. Well, from that moment on, Satan has chosen to make his life mission, or his eternal life mission, to deceive you and I so that you and I would suffer in eternal separation from God should we choose not to believe in him. And listen, whether listen to me, whether you're Christian or you're not Christian, it doesn't matter to him. And I'll tell you why. Because the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis, chapter 1, Genesis 1, 27, that you and I are made in the image of God. That means that every time Satan looks at you, he's reminded of God. Because you reflect his image, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you were created in the image of God. So you remind Satan of God and the position he once had 
as described in Ezekiel 28. And so his intent and purpose is to tempt you and deceive you and destroy you and lie to you to keep you from believing in Jesus. It's the one fundamental thing that he cares about. And this is why I say whether you're Christian or not Christian is irrelevant to him. Some of you in here may say, well, maybe, well, I'm not Christian. He doesn't bother me. That's a lie. That's not true because you remind him of God because of how you're created. And so this is what's called the Imago Dei, and I don't have time to get into Latin. <laughs> but he can. And Mark was going to correct you on the Isaiah 14, right? You yes, said? It is Isaiah 14. Oh, okay. He wasn't going to correct you. Okay. All right. Great. Reagan's got the next question. Who are some young people that God has used in great ways? Okay. Um, some young people that God has used in great ways. Um, in, in, in Scripture, you see a couple that I think stand out. Daniel is one who he was led away from his home, and he was taken away in captivity and um, thrown into a hard situation to conform, and he chose not to. He chose to stand up and... Uh, God used him in amazing ways. Look up, you can read in Daniel 1 through 6. Um, that's somewhere you can go back and read. Um, and then Josiah is one. He became king at eight years old. Can you imagine becoming the president of the United States at eight years old? We'd all, we'd all be in trouble. But um, then year, uh, not too long later, a few years later, um, they found the word of God, basically, and, and he read it and he realized that we are not following God's word we need to change what we're doing. And so God used him in great ways to turn around the nation. And you see throughout history that great movements of the Lord have hugely started with young people. And I remember when I was in high school, um, a couple, uh, this man and wife that were mentoring me, told me, you dream a dream so big that only God can do it. And so guys, you've got to dream a dream so big for the glory of God, that only God could do that through you. And just step out in faith and do what he calls you to do. Be bold, live for Jesus, and, and God will use you in great ways. Another thing, if you haven't seen the movie Woodlawn, go see it, um, about a bunch of young kids who God used, so, yeah. In the New Testament also, you look at uh, the, uh, closer to the end of the New Testament, a character named Timothy. And Timothy was a young man who Paul had mentored and uh, he did great things. And Paul, you read those two, those two books, First Timothy, Second Timothy, Paul comes back to him and encourages him. Don't, don't let people look down upon your youth. Uh, don't be intimidated because you're young. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm just going to say this. I see, I see in this generation and in this church many of you who lead very strong, committed Christian lives. And you, uh, you, you don't compromise. And honestly, I look up to you and think, my goodness, the way you're leading your life uh, is, is better than I led my life at your age. And so um, I'm, very, I'm very proud of you and what I see uh, you doing. And just real quick, about 15 seconds for that, okay. Uh, just growing up, seventh grade, my best friend growing up in junior high football really got serious about his faith when he was in seventh grade. And we went to church together, we went to school together, we played football together. And the fact that God began to get a hold of his life impacted my life. And, and to my young people, and, and it's not just biblical characters, just like Mark was saying today. When you let God begin to have his way in you li your life and you step out and you begin to walk, 
it will impact people around you. And I still thank God. His name is Robert Creech. He actually is a pastor. Well, now he's teaching in a seminary. He was one of my, my son's student, one of teachers in seminary. But I thank God for him that God began to deal in his life as a seventh grader, and he used him to begin dealing in my life as well. That's great. We're getting a lot of questions. Jason's uh, texting me in the back. We're getting a lot of questions about different religions and, and Catholicism and Protestants and all that kind of stuff. I want you guys to know we're not going to address those right now because in, uh, in February, the first weekend of Feb- or the first Wednesday night in February, we're actually going to have six weeks where we're going to deal with all the different world religions and give you a picture of that stuff. So if you're asking those questions, they're great questions. We're going to address those uh, down the road. So uh, next question, who's got it? Let's see. I think Chris has got how does praying for someone else affect anything if God already has a plan that will not change? Alfonso. God already has a plan that doesn't change. I think God's plan does change. Go ahead. Well, you, do, you actually do see uh, several times in Scripture where the, the consistent effectual prayers of God's people. I mean, it just says it changes God's mind. He, 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 he changes his decision on, on that. You see that, you see that throughout scripture. So I, I, I would actually say that God does listen to us and he, you know, we, our prayers do affect him. You want to add to that? That was good. <laughs> All right. Great. <laughs> great. All right. Reagan's got a question. <laughs> Is smoking weed a sin? The quick answer is it, yes, because it's against the law. And, and we're, we're, we, we are uh, commanded to follow the statutes of the, 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 the laws. That, that's the quick answer. Yeah, let me give you the complicated answer. <laughs> yes. In your brain... You have three parts of the brain. One is called the frontal cortex. One is called the mammalian brain or what's called the limbic region. And then you have the brain stem. Uh, These are very important parts of the brain. And when you are in your mother's womb, the brain stem is being developed. This is where the thalamus develops. This is where you learn to eat, breathe, sleep, all the rhythms in life. When you are born all the way to five years of age, the limbic region, the middle part of the brain begins to develop, and that is where you learn emotions. That's where you learn to love your parents. That's where you learn to love unconditionally. That's where you learn to, 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 to build friendships and understand relationships. From the time you're five years old to 21, this is so important for you to understand. I've been, in, I've been around drugs my whole life. When you begin the age of six all the way to 21 years of age, the frontal cortex This is what separates us from animals. Animals have a thalamus and they also have a limbic region. The frontal cortex is what animals do not have. This is why your dog cannot talk to you as much as you love it. Talk all day with that thing. It ain't going to respond because it doesn't have what's called frontal lobes. Well, these frontal lobes are where we have critical thinking. It's where we learn to do math. It's where we learn to analyze. It's where we develop intelligence. It's how we learn to communicate. When you do drugs heroin, methamphetamine, uh, particularly uh, marijuana, it, it's, it begins to affect the frontal cortex so that it doesn't develop properly. This is a scientific fact. I couldn't make this up. Your frontal cortex begins to become impaired. The brain mass, your brain mass is about three pounds. 
three pounds, and that begins to develop right from the time you are conceived all the way to 21, the, the, what's called the gray matter of the brain is forming and it's expanding and it's stretching until you're 21, then you have full three pounds of mass up here. If you do drugs, you will stop the growth of the mass of your brain and you will stop the growth of the frontal cortex. Let me put it to you in layman terms, you'll end up very stupid. And that's funny and it's comical and facetious, but I have a brother right now, he's 42 years old, he's one year younger than me. He did every drug you can possibly conceive of when we were teenagers. Today, he is on disability the rest of his life. He, is, he has acquired schizophrenia, he is injected with Haldol, it's an antipsychotic prescribed only by psychiatrists. He cannot work, the government will never let him work, he'll never get married, he'll never have kids, he'll never have anything. Because my brother in the gang where I grew up, in the gang where I grew up, he was known as the Cookie Monster. That was his, kind of his gang name. And the reason was, is he did every drug you can think of. I had friends that would come up to me and say, uh, Alfonso, I sold your brother a bag of baking soda and he did the entire line of baking soda in front of me. Well, that affected his frontal cortex that till this day he is highly debilitated in his brain function capacity. I have another brother in prison, so I know a little bit about what I'm talking about. This is essentially the problem with doing marijuana, even if it was justified in the Bible, which it's not, and I can give you 100 scriptures that it's not. But even if it was, that's something you would not want to do because I promise you scientifically, and I can quote all the statistical facts, you will, you will hinder the growth of your development of your brain. You will become a vegetable. That is a true truism. This is why we have a law in America that doesn't allow you to drink till you're 21. Why do you think we invent these laws? Because we want to be mean as legislators? No. It's because we understand things today with the fMRI, CAT scans. We see things we didn't see 50 years ago. So this is why this is important. Great. Chris has another question. How do I cope with a loss in my family? Wow. Um, we lose people different ways, and I'm, I'm assuming when I hear that question, it's a physical loss, it's a death of someone that you love, and, and, and uh, when that happens, your heart's broken over that kind of situation. Um, I will tell you, for me personally, when, when I have that kind of heartache, um, my greatest comfort comes from time alone with the Lord in His Word, bottom line. Um, and read the psalmist and read David's heart and how he cries out to God. Um, loss is difficult and it's painful and it's hard. God understands your loss. He truly understands your heart uh, when you have a loss, whether it's to death, whether it's to divorce, what, whatever the loss might be. God knows. Um, when you understand you have a creator who made you, who empathizes with you, um, who wants you, like Alfonso was saying earlier in prayer, to cry out to him and commune with him. He wants to be there with you in that moment as well. And he is the one who comes and gives you comfort through his word. Um, it's great to have friends around you. It's great to have other people. But nothing will, will do for your life and your heartache what God will do when, you're, when you get alone with him. But it's still tough. I'm not saying it's an easy thing even with that. It's not. But it's a can be God can turn it into a time of sweetness for your life uh, if that's what you're experiencing right now. 
If you gave your life to Christ, yet still continue to sin, are you going to hell? Why does God still love me even when I keep messing up? Okay, she said, uh, if I continue to sin whenever I become a Christian, am I going to hell? And then what was the second part? How does God love me if I still keep messing up? Okay, how does God love me if I still keep messing up? Um, the, the truth is that when we become a Christian, everyone has sinned. Once, after becoming a Christian, everyone has sinned. So sinning after you become a Christian, none of us would make it to heaven if, because we all still struggle with sin at times. Um, in John 10, it talks about how uh, Jesus calls us his sheep and how uh, we hear his voice we hear, and we recognize his voice and nothing can snatch us out of his hands. So our salvation is secure. So we, once we become a Christian, we're, we're secure in him. Um, we're forgiven of our sins, um, past, present, future. But the problem is when people abuse that and they say, oh, well, I have God's grace. Grace uh, is God's favor on us when we don't deserve it. And when they say, oh, well, I've been forgiven, so I'll just sin. I'll just do whatever because God's already forgiven me. You know, I already have a license to sin because... God's forgiven me. That doesn't re reflect a heart that's truly saved. And so in that situation, I would say, have you really chosen to follow Jesus? Because if you've chosen to follow Jesus, you choose to obey Jesus in the way that you live because you love him, because you, wanna, you, you have him as your Lord and your Savior. So he's not only saving me from eternal punishment in hell, but he's, he's my Lord now. He's, he's, my, he's my leader in my life. He's who I want to follow. So that comes with obedience to Christ. And so as Christians, I think we have to fight against that struggle of sin. It's not just a, oh, I struggle with this. That's just something I'm always going to struggle with. No, you fight against it. You, you know, Ephesians 6 talks about putting on the armor of God so that we fight that battle against sin so that we can, be, we can become victorious against that sin. And then you start to see God working in your life and, and giving you victory because he's your Lord. He's, you know, he's your master and you want to live for him. Second part is, why does God still love us even when we sin? Well, I think uh, the, the nature of God is to continually pursue us. We, we, there's nothing that we do to receive God's grace. We, we can't be good enough to receive God's grace. God's grace is extended to us. His love is reaching out to us regardless of whether we're moving toward him or not. And so when we continue to sin, we just have to remember that God is always reaching out to us. He's always wanting to, as long as we still have life and breath, God, is, God has, got his, has his arms open wide, and he wants to receive us back to him. And so he will constantly pursue us. He never gives up on us. He always wants us to come back to him. Let me say one word. And First John talks about this. He says, if we say we have no sin, we lie on the truth is not in us. So we're all sinners. But, but, but it also says if we claim to have fellowship, but if we walk in darkness, we lie on the truth is not in us. And what that, the difference in those two things, and Michelle hit him great and so did Mark, the difference is uh, we're talking about habits of life. God understands our struggle with sin. The fact that you're struggling with it, the fact that you're fighting it, like Michelle said, that means there's something that's happened in your life. You're wanting to do the right thing. That's a good thing that you're fighting it and you're wanting to make the right choices and live righteously like we talked about Sunday morning to do the right thing with, before God. But if as a habit of life, if my life is I'm going to sin and do whatever I want 
and I don't care about the consequences and there's no fight going on and I'm going to do my thing and I don't care and I'm just going to ask God to save me and I'm just going to keep doing my thing, then you got to wonder, yeah, have I really chosen to follow him? Because he says, if you say you have fellowship with me, but walk in darkness as a habit of life. So if you're fighting, fantastic. If you're not fighting at all, you need to take an assessment of where you really are. Good. We have, uh, we're going to ask one last question. We've got a lot still uh, that you guys have put in, and I want you guys to know that uh, they'll actually be here afterwards. If you have some, a question that you'd really like to have answered, but you didn't have a chance, a little bit later after we're all done, they'll be up here up front. You can come ask them. Uh, there was some questions about angels, like lots of people asking different questions about angels. We uh, just got that, and we're not going to be able to get to it. Um, do you guys have any scriptures that you would turn to? I know Hebrews uh, talks a lot about angels. Any other scriptures you guys can think of? That if they have questions about that, they can go look at it. Yeah, Hebrews 2.14. Hebrews 2.14. Good yes. one. Okay. It talks about how, how angels are, are sent by God to minister to us. But we also know in scripture that they have the ability to appear as, as people. Right, as they did with Abraham in the book of, what is it, Genesis chapter 18, I believe. So, um, yeah, I mean, is, is there anything specific they want to know about? They had lots of questions, but I was just I was trying to give them maybe a couple of scriptures they can look at since we won't necessarily be able to address it tonight. But uh, we got one last question that, that Chris is going to ask, uh, and then we'll, we'll close down for tonight. Okay. If God can do anything, why did he have to die on the cross? And why can't he just make everything okay without dying? You want the complex or the easy version? You want the complex? Here's the complex. What I'm about to tell you is the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help me God. When you have your thalamus, when the thalamus develops in the back part of the brain, it's called the brain stem. This thalamus is what registers all of life, and here's how it registers. What I'm about to tell you the truth. How it registers life is through five areas. The thalamus, and right above it sits the hypothalamus. If this was a marriage conference, I would get into the hypothalamus. It's a dangerous little place. But the thalamus registers all of life through five things. It registers through the eye, through the touch. You have 1.5 million receptors in your hand, so you feel every single thing that you touch. It also registers through the nose and through the mouth. There are five senses that the thalamus picks up on, five senses. Listen to me. It is the most tangible way that we can experience life. The most tangible way to experience life. God could have chosen some other plan to redeem humanity. But God understanding humanity because he created us, according to Genesis 2-7, God chose to reveal himself in the most tangible expression of who he is. And the way that he did that, unlike any other God of any other religion, not one, God was the only one who manifested himself through the person of Jesus so that you could touch and behold who he is. Jesus wanted to make sure that he would tabernacle among his people, as it says in Exodus 25, 8. 
He wanted to be among us. He wanted to touch us. He wanted to feel us. He wanted to make sure that you understood that he was as real as the five senses through which you perceive everything in life. This is why we love people. This is why nothing matters more important to us than relationships. This is why some of you, by the time you're 19, you're going to go through cardiomyopathy through a broken heart because of a broken relationship if you haven't done so already. Nothing is wired like the human heart to receive the most tangible expression of humanity loving on you unconditionally. The only way that God could have done this was to manifest himself in the flesh as a human. And that is precisely what he did to touch you with his life. And that's why he did that. 